0: What's up, guys? My name is Dan Safso. I'm Chris And I'm
1: Eric Carson. And we would like to welcome you all to our first episode of our podcast alongside the launch of our new podcast platform, StarCasts. StarCasts is a mobile app for producing podcasts and discovering new ones. Their mission is to democratize the podcast industry. StarCasts is unique compared to other podcast platforms because it is a one-stop shop for learning how to produce and consume podcast content.
0: You know a little bit more about Starcast. We will now start off with today's topic. So whether you're in a car, on a run, or simply trying to learn something you may just not have known yesterday, we'll get ready to strap in for today's discussion. All right, guys, well, today we're gonna jump into a pretty relevant topic uh, that seems to be affecting many people, not only within you know the music industry and the music community, but uh, those who are surrounding it as well, within a time span ranging from the '70s to the present, aka 2020, Shit, 2020 guys. I oh, know, seriously. A, yeah. Oh my gosh, so new old. decade. Uh, you know, that's a large span to talk about music and its connection with drug abuse, and other the other way around with you know the surrounding communities. One way I think that we would have a much better understanding of how addiction and drug use relates to our surrounding society today is uh, unfortunately that. People are just not talking about it mm-hmm. as much as it should be talked about, and uh, researchers are just now doing more studies about what causes addiction rather than in the past when they probably should have been doing these research this uh, research
2: right it's it's not so much a war on drugs as it is more so you know really figuring out why people are addicting to are addicted to various yeah, substances. Like
0: what gets people addicted almost and now researchers are. Researchers are finally doing these studies, uh, trying to understand how the brain works with different types of drugs and which ones are more addictive, why people are going back to them, and what people are doing to get access to these drugs for which their addiction is occurring from. Mm -hmm. Um, In a study taken back in 1979, done by a social research group at the George Washington University, they found that through 7,224 face-to-face interviews, that the study found the highest use of drug... Of marijuana was used by young adults between the ages of 18 and 25, and that nearly 7 in 10 young adults have experienced the use of the drug, while 1 in 3 are currently using it. So that just comes from a a, uh, research that was done out of GWU, uh, late 70s, almost 80s. And now, you know, marijuana use is Basically, normalized now in today's uh, media and music industry. Mm-hmm. So you know, we we look at some of these numbers and can think about multiple reasons why the use of that is now becoming a legal drug in most states, uh, and it's primarily used as the number one recreational drug at, of choice. Can, can we put this more into
1: perspective, real quick? Um, with this, just the statistics that we brought up, um, so seven in ten young adults have experienced use of the drug. That's a lot of people. So if you put 10 people in a room between the age of 18 and 25, seven of them have used this illegal substance. Exactly, yeah. We all know it's illegal, and we all choose to use it anyway. At least seven out of ten of us do. Mm -hmm. And then one in three currently use. So that's daily active marijuana users. It's still illegal in most places in the country, but if one in three people use it, that's a lot. It's a lot of crime. I don't know. It's a lot of crime you know, that's been criminalized. I mean, statistically, you know? one of the
0: three of us is a daily active marijuana user. Mm-hmm. I wonder who it is.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Come <maybe>. on, guys. <laughs> Come on Come on now. Um, no, but, you know, sort of, I think that brings an issue that maybe we didn't think about earlier in our, in our studies um, of morality. It, but morality nowadays is much more subjective than it used to be. I mean, if we think back as, early as i don't know the 20s everyone was going to church if you weren't going to church you know you're probably a problem for the society you're, probably a them, you're a, yeah you're, you're, you're yeah, yeah so burn them, them right at right. the stake <laughs> you know what i mean but but think about it in terms of um you know obviously our our government has decided that using marijuana is a problem and and obviously we're progressing in a different direction nowadays so that we are much more tolerant of of marijuana use Um, but if you think about it, we've had absolutely zero deaths related to marijuana and focusing on the artists and the timeline that we've established for this podcast. I mean, from 1970 to 2019, we've lost a minimum of seven different artists that we chose to, to specifically bring to attention, but there's
0: been multiple, but there's been many more.
2: So there's all sorts of people that are essentially using drugs Um, And in dying from that drug use, and not only just in the um, music industry, but in in society as well. You know, I I did a quick, quick glimpse of of what we're dealing with, um, a little bit of research to look into sort of the opioid consumption and the epidemic that it is. Um, The CDC reported that 70,000 deaths were due to opioid consumption within the United States in 2019. In eighty-eight thousand alcohol-related deaths accompanied it.
0: That's crazy. Like those numbers, just
2: so this is year, something yeah. that clearly people should be talking about because in society alone we have a significant issue with drug usage. And I mean, as you can, you can. I mean, here's the deal. I think we're getting to a point where in society we're. we're questioning what drug use is. Is it bad? Is it good? Is it just a thing that happens? I mean, as early as the ninth century, we see uh, heroin being used um, as a medication. But that's still a drug, and it's being used for a purpose. Um, And similar to use subjectively, let's focus on our our artists.
0: Yeah, so let's maybe... uh
2: Let's let's think about Jimi Hendrix yeah, sure. and um I also want to talk about um Amy Winehouse too because Yeah,
0: I think she's a definitely someone that we need to talk she, about. She's and bring up.
2: she's not just a person that's using because um maybe she's she's mentally ill. I mean to a certain degree, yeah, there's body dysmorphia in, involved with her bulimia, but um you know, Whitney he drank herself to death. She drowned oh, yeah, she, in alcohol, yeah. more or less. Um And clearly she wasn't happy. One thing that sort of resonated me when I was reading through her profile, um, at one point she reaches out to her mom and she says, mom, I found this great new diet. And she was always self-conscious about who she was and sort of how she looked. So she was always looking to, you know, stay fit and fine. Especially
0: with all the pressure coming from, you know. Exactly. I mean, she's on the stage. And, oh, yeah.
2: You, you really definitely. do need to hold yourself to a certain standard because you are the one driving an audience, ultimately making all of this money. You have
0: to look the part. You have to sound the part, you know. Exactly. You can't be fucking up in front of all this paparazzi. Exactly.
2: You really can't. Yeah. So in a way, you don't own your life. So what she did is she sort of self-medicated with, with alcohol, but um, that diet that she was talking about when she spoke with her mom was essentially she would binge eat at lunch with her friends and then later on she would proceed to throw up. Yeah. And she, she's like I can stay skinny but eat what I want.
0: Yeah. You she, know she's eating what she wants but she's not digesting it and you know getting the nutri- nutrients that she really needs as a performer. Uh, you know when you're performing you're on stage for hours and before then you know you have to really Hone your craft and be practicing and going over lines and going over scripts and going over your music and lines and everything. And it's not only a physical thing that you have to do, it's a mental thing you have to do. And, you know, in this case with Amy Winehouse, she, if you're not eating right and you're basically not eating anything to a point and drinking yourself to sleep every night, you know, you're not going to have the energy to do your job. And it ended up in her death.
2: What's also interesting to see because, you know, Arguably, she's one of those members of society that has everything that she needs. Uh, she's got money. She's got fame. You know, she's this idol in the eyes of the public. However... Glass is always greener. Exactly. That's, that's what we could assume. Especially but, as a
1: performer. There's this immense pressure to be that vision of perfection on the stage exactly. or on the screen or wherever she is. Yeah. You know,
2: sort of... I mean, beautifully spoken, she goes ahead and she's talks about you know her friends and family trying to get her into rehab um you know we can all think about the song super catchy you know it's 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 a good song but then at the same time it's like to a certain degree she is identifying that she has a problem and that other people have tried to help her deal with that problem and essentially what she's doing is she's self-medicating um let's think about 1994 Kurt Cobain lead singer of Nirvana Although before we were sort of thinking that it was an alcohol overdose, it's obviously um, his life was taken by heroin, essentially. Kurt Cobain wasn't it?
0: Oh no! So uh, not Kurt Cobain because Kurt Cobain committed suicide, but Kurt Cobain also had a very long history of drug abuse and had multiple overdoses. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ultimately, you know, that led up to his death. Um, with uh, what was it? Uh, fucking. Uh, Bon Scott, the lead singer of ACDC. Oh, ACDC, true. Yeah. True. So switch them around, but it's all good.
2: But also consider the fact that um, at one point, I can't can't remember if it's like Black Box or something like that by Nirvana. He he says, cut cut my life in angel hair or something like that. Basically, he's like, you know, my life is nothing but a a couple lines. You know what I mean? Angel dust, baby. So it's it's pretty weird to, to see that, all of these people, uh, these public figures that are supposed to be our idols and our motivators um, for production and this fabulous lifestyle, are extremely unhappy. They're drowning themselves in substances, and then they're not only drowning in these substances, but they're going ahead and, and writing about them and singing about them. And the public is like, "Hey, thanks for the song."
0: Exactly. You
2: know what oh. I mean? It's like that's yeah, catchy. It's like, oh, it sucks that it? that guy is clearly you know fucked up. But uh, oh, I like his music, yeah. <laughs> you know. Let's jam out to it. It's it's super weird, um, you know. And and then if we think about from sort of a more contemporary uh, scope, uh, hip hop as a whole is more of this. It's it's a narrative based genre where people are taking their physical experiences in this world and putting them on paper and then rapping about them. Yeah, it's all
0: you know, a lot of the culture too that comes with hip hop, you know, you have to have the fancy clothes, you have to have the money, you have to have the jets, you have to have the shoes, all that lifestyle is encapsulated as well with, you know, the drug community. And, you know, part of the reason why Juice World recently passed away in 2019 at the age of 21 was not only was he encapsulated in that lifestyle, but when his private jet landed, the reason why he took all these substances right away was because the substances in his pocket if he were to be caught with them would have done him time in jail and now he's doing time in heaven or hell we don't know where the afterlife he's dead we can't foresee what would have happened afterwards but the drugs on that plane he had a a lot of marijuana on the plane he had illegal percocets
2: uh, he had pounds of marijuana, Dr- drug
0: pounds of marijuana, and, drugs that and weren't several prescribed. Perks, you know what I mean. He had a lot of these different drugs, but that's a lifestyle that a lot of people, I don't think, young kids exactly understand until you know they start seeing some of their favorite musicians dying from overdoses, and they don't understand the scope exactly of what these people are going through because they haven't exactly been thrusted into that world of music and what it takes, you know, to make music, what you use to deal with, you know, different things that happen in your, in your life. And that breaks outside of the music world. You know, we have a lot of people in society, especially it's surrounding communities on the seacoast here in New Hampshire, uh, where heroin is a huge problem. It destroys families as well as, you know, it destroys relationships amongst friends, family, loved ones. And we can see that happening in the music world. And you know, it's almost like a microcosm for the outside world is this music community where yes, drugs are prevalent. A lot of drugs are talked about in songs and music in relation to problems in the outside world. But drugs seems to be an issue that is prevalent amongst all these different issues in different families.
2: You know what I think? So, so one thing that I do believe is important, especially to talk about in, in a setting like this um sort of the loss of identity with both fame and substance abuse. You yeah, let's know. talk about that Chris. Come so on. let's think about this for instance. Um, so once you're famous, your, your identity is your brand. You know what I mean? We, we don't really know. Sometimes we don't even know artists first and last names. We just know them as, you know, Lil Xan or Eminem or, you know, I, Lady Gaga. You know what I mean? It's, it's interesting because so not only are these people famous and, and they're not themselves, the person that they've grown up to be for, you know, I mean, often early twenties, perhaps later, perhaps earlier. Um, but now if they're incorporating these drugs into their lives, I mean, how, how can they even figure out and, and concretely define themselves um, while well, they're expected to be this, this, um, entity, this, this, um, piece of production, you know what I mean? And I think
0: that's like, also, you know, that's, that's a hard question for us to answer. Um, you know, if we were to bring in, you know, one of these musicians who has a history of drug use and has maybe overcome it or is dealing with it, they give us a better understanding of what's going on in their life and whether or not the drugs are to be know remedying those things or it's become their lifestyle and it's hard to understand i think for our perspective we have to look at a general scope and say what is the general thing that's happening how is it being communicated with their music and how is the audience reacting to it
2: Um, so so sort of going off of that i think um we should consider people's lives before they're famous and sort of uh, the experiences that they've encountered that have potentially harmed or, or hurt others and, and within their involvement, right? Let's, so let's say, uh, I'm a rapper and I lose, uh, three of my friends to gang violence. You know, that's, that's going to, I don't know about you guys, but I, even if you, even if you have lost somebody in your life, even a friend, um, I, I don't really know if I could figure out a way to cope with one of my friends being shot. And, you know, I, I sort of thought it was interesting because You know, there's this new narrative out there that um, some rappers and some hip hop artists are essentially saying, you know, these guys are fucking losers. The ones that are using drugs, the ones that are addicted uh, to substances. And then not only are they addicted, but they're influencing other people by putting it out there on the media. Um, But um, to get to the point, essentially, we have uh, this new movement from other hip hop artists that are like, these guys are fucking losers. Like I never did drugs. I never, you know, sold drugs. I never, you know, hit women and stuff like that, which yeah, to a certain degree, we would understand that. But it's interesting because there's some, there's often backlash when people like Russ and, um, Jake, Jake sort of come to the scene and they're like, Hey, you know, Lozanne, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, there's a lot you know of I mean? there's
0: a lot of outrage when uh there was an award ceremony and uh uh X got uh some nomination for an award and uh J. Cole and Russ were both two people who basically were talking about this kind of issue of, you know, uh don't mourn people who have or like have hit women or ha- are abusing drugs. Yeah, exactly. And it hit home to a lot of people who are fans of X because they saw you know this guy who he had a lot of domestic uh, abuse issues in his past, but had resolved a lot of those issues. He's trying to rehabilitate. He's, re- he's rehabilitating himself uh, away from drugs, away from abuse, uh, not only with drugs but physical abuse of partners, um, and was trying to make uh, good in the world and change his whole dynamic of who he was. And, uh, you know, things like other musicians calling out people for their past, you know, for some degree, I think we as society have to do that in order to, you know, learn from our mistakes and grow as a society and grow as people. But at the same time, why don't we motivate those people who are trying to move on from uh, changes in their life that have happened over the course of five, ten years and motivate them to, you know, hey, like, why don't you come on to like one of my tracks and we'll do a song that relates to, you know, you're overcoming these issues that you've done and sort the of talk platform, about it, get the it out platform there to talk about these issues that they may be going through and drugs that may be being harmful to their life.
2: I mean, but, so go ahead.
0: I'm
1: all for people recovering from their uh, addictions or whatever they've been doing, but with cases of abuse, the abuser is not excused from his exact actions. No. Yeah.
2: Yeah, of course. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying
0: we should move past that. I think we should, we should make sure that they are called out for that, which I'm a supporter of, you know, making sure that women get the right to bring these people to court and get what they deserve because of the actions that were taken upon them. My mom was, you know, she worked for a a domestic violence organization uh, back in New York and I was since high school, I was very involved with learning these stories of these women these who had to leave their families and bring their children out of the household to get away from abusive men, as well as some men who had to leave abusive relationships. And, you know, it's something that's scary, but it's also another issue within our society that sometimes relates closely to uh, drug abuse that mm-hmm. people just use it. It's to- like they go
2: hand in hand to a certain degree. It's, you know,
0: like they go hand in hand. And some people who are the, uh, the victims of these things are using drugs to cope, and they're not leaving the relationships.
2: Yeah, you know, and, and that sort of brings up such a vast issue that I know. That, that I wish, yeah. I w- I wish honestly, you know, we could solve that easily, but you know, this is why we're here to talk about it today. You know, sort so sort of going back to
0: let's go back to uh, let's go back to Jimi Hendrix and talk a little about him. Uh, one
2: one thing we should yeah. mention about Hendrix. So his era, um, there was a lot of acid. There's a lot of cocaine. There was the a lot Vietnam of
0: weed. there's weed the vietnam war was happening
2: exactly so there's going to be a natural spike in opium use um they don't have internet yet
0: so
2: but it's it's also cameras everywhere it's interesting to say because um you know i remember watching a documentary where Jimi hendrix is up on stage and he's absolutely killing this guitar solo and and woodstock Mm -hmm. and later on they interview him and they're like so you know sort of what were you thinking and he goes, yeah. "I was battling a snake," <laughs> and they're like, "You know what the hell is this guy talking about?" And essentially, he thought his guitar was a snake, and he would, and he had to kill the the solo to kill the snake.
0: Yeah.
2: So he, he plays one of his best performances, and, he, and this guy's on acid. You know
0: what I mean? Can we pull up that? Can yeah, pull that up? let's
2: get that yeah. up here. Um, but sir while you guys are are looking for that, um.
0: Yeah. While while we're looking for that, I'm just gonna I have it pulled up for us, and you know we'll we'll do a uh, a video clip and audio clip on the on the uh, podcast. But basically, I just want to get a little bit bit of a background, so you know why Jimi Hendrix was such a huge figure for so many in the '70s, and what ultimately led up to his death was a drug overdose. So uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, he learned to play guitar when he was a teenager, and he grew up to become this rock legend who you know excited audiences. Uh, starting in the 1960s, and uh, you know he had this new way of playing the electric guitar that no one had really seen before or heard before, and it made a lot of people more ambitious with wanting to learn the guitar, pick it up, and play like Jimi Hendrix, uh, which no one obviously could. But, no, uh, no. <clears throat> so in the mid-1960s, uh, Hendrix met this guy named Chas Chandler, and he was, mm-hmm. ended up being this bass player of the British rock group uh, The Animals. And, uh, so he signed this agreement with Hendrix to become his manager in the late 1960s. And, um, around, uh, that time Hendrix followed his father's footsteps by later on enlisting in the United States army. So he took, was taking this break. He didn't know what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, while he was training as a paratrooper, he, uh, he f- found time for his music and, uh, formed a band called the King Casals and, uh, until then, Hendrix then served in, in the Army until 1962, and he was honorably discharged after injuring himself during a parachute jump. So uh, that's then afterwards, that's when he met Chaz mm-hmm. after that whole incident. That's when his music career kicks that's off. That's when it started. He's like, you know what? This is going to be it. Like, i loved this before. I'm going to take it and go with it. And he met these people uh, who signed a with him uh so then uh in 1967 jimmy hendrix exp- the Jimi hendrix experience was uh his first single was put out and it was called hey joe and this was an instant smash everyone loved it in britain and uh soon followed hits such as purple haze which we're going to talk about and mm-hmm. uh the wind cries mary uh the hit all along the watchtower was later released and this was actually written by bob dylan if you don't know the story behind it it's a great story you know How the song was written by Bob Dylan, but he wanted basically Jimi Hendrix to be the one who did the song.
2: Mm -hmm. So I mean, uh,
0: this was released on their last album.
2: So sort of talk about you know song Purple Haze. Um,
0: If you if you look at
2: one of the stanzas, he goes, Yeah, Purple Haze, all in my eyes. Don't know if it's day or night. You got me blown, blown my mind. Is it tomorrow? The end of time. Uh, kind of interesting to about. You know, what I mean, like this guy is—he's not only is he advocating for anti-war, um, he's producing music that's never been produced ever before, and then he's also sort of talking about how you know he's—he's he's fucked up all the time, you know, and, and to a certain degree, whether it be recreational or uh, you start sort of trying to use um, substances to cope with the past or you know mental illness whatever it be um you're going to lose yourself somewhere down the line and it's interesting to see that as far back as hendrix we're seeing it in the lyricism where they are identifying a loss of identity and a loss of time you know it's it's like i've spent most of my days recently getting fucked up i don't even know what today is and it's not it's not necessarily a literal stance essentially he's taking a metaphorical stance and saying you know how i would interpret this is I don't really know who I've become. I don't recognize myself from the person I recognized yesterday, you know? So I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of weird to see that even back in the seventies, people were sort of speaking out against, um, maybe they're not even speaking out against, Substance.
0: I don't think they abuse. were speaking out against substance abuse at all. I think they were using recreationally to in, while enjoying music, but also they were using recreationally as almost like a resistance to, you know, war, the Vietnam War. Society. Um, so, not even society. Like, I think their society. I mean, perfect example is when he played at Woodstock, you know. Mm-hmm. All these, you know, the 70s were the hippie movement. And, yeah, everybody's you know, doing drugs. Everyone's doing drugs. Everyone's, it's the the uh decade of love mm-hmm. and every everyone's mutually agreeing to do this all together as one and everyone came together to you know listen to music that was anti war music where like all these people who Jimi Hendrix, he was dishonorably discharged by the army. These people fucking love him. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, he's uh, he left the army, dishonorably discharged. Now he's rocking out on the guitar, now, do we talking want, about was drugs. Was he drafted
1: originally, or he No, he
0: enlisted. <laughs> yeah, he he enlisted. enlisted yeah, so yeah, his father was in the war. Yeah. Or his father was in the army, and then he enlisted into the army, uh, but was dishonorably discharged uh, before or well, during the Vietnam War. Okay. Yeah.
2: This is sort of a time where he's trying to figure out what, what? direction he's going. Yeah.
0: Sure. I mean, from,
1: from my point of view, something I've, I've always found very interesting about Jimi Hendrix is that when he was in training in the military, mm-hmm. he, he had his father send him his guitar. Yeah. So he would skip training, he would skip formations, things he was supposed to show up to practice.
0: Mm-hmm. So, obviously, this guy had you know something he loved, but I don't think, one, because he was African American mm-hmm. in a white America, he, he thought, all so right. So, by
1: default, he has less options. Less exactly. Than who can yeah. Be, whose
0: Exactly. And so by following in his father's footsteps, by joining the army, he's doing something that not only will be like looked upon in a good way by not only his family, but other people. Whereas, you know, would he be able to make it as a guitarist sure. if, you know, he didn't go through these steps? If he didn't get dishonorably discharged, would he ever have met this guy?
1: But I also see him finding himself and creating his identity through his actions. So exactly. He knows yeah. he's not going to be a soldier. He's going to be a musician. That's what yeah. he starts to practice. Exactly. And then yeah. when he leaves the army, he does have this sort of identity as I'm a musician, and then he plays in Woodstock because, well, he's had a career so far that allows yeah. him to. And so I'm just wondering, at what point does he have an identity and what point does he lose it? Yeah, Is exactly. It because it's just changing that he feels like he doesn't have it anymore? Because I know, like, when we go through changes in our lives, sometimes I'll feel like, oh, who even am I? Yeah, yeah. When true. I started college, I was a theater major, and now I'm interviewing for business positions. Yeah, yeah. So, so you... I don't have the same
0: identity I do, two thousand. Uh, hey, I, I mean, really I'm similar to you. I was a music major for a year and a half, and, you know, I love playing the viola out of mm-hmm. all things. I just, I loved it. I played it when I was a little kid. I grew up to, you know, play at Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall a couple times with the symphony, and that's what I thought I wanted to do. And uh, after playing it for so long and, you know, doing all these rehearsals and being very isolated and playing just by myself eight hours a day, no real social life, uh, up late hours at night, just trying to perfect certain parts for this one kind of thing. It was less fluid than you know being a guitarist, where you can make your own band. Mm-hmm. You had to be almost perfectionist, and that's what I didn't like. So I changed to now you know communication, and you know that's where I found passion in. And for this, for Jimi Hendrix, he found a lot of passion in music, not you know formalized structure like the army. You know he he wasn't going to be an army man because he knew that he needed that fluidity that came with being a guitarist. Sure.
2: So how how did Jimi Hendrix end up dying? What what ultimately uh took his life? So I'm not so familiar. Yeah,
0: so Hendrix actually he ended up dying from a heroin overdose, I believe. Uh Yeah, hold on. Yeah, oh no, he didn't die from a heroin overdose. He he overdosed from a barbituate, which I don't know exactly what that is. What's a barbituate? Check it out right
1: now. Okay. Let's see. A barbiturate is a drug that acts as a central nervous system depressant and can therefore produce a wide range of effects, from mild sedation to death.
0: Oh, great! Yeah. So, so I, I don't know. Did he? Maybe you know. It does it act like an opioid? Maybe.
2: It's it's probably somewhat of like a Xanax effect where it's gonna really relax the person that's consumed it and ultimately um, provide some sort of... You sa- did you say it was an antidepressant? Or it's a depressant. Or depressant. It's a it's depressant. System depressant. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's just going to lower your heart rate. It's going to chill you the fuck out. And I'm sure he, I imagine with a bunch of different stress of just traveling a, a ton, I think, uh, you know, potentially he was using drugs to take the edge off at night and then also incorporating it into his music where he's using drugs and playing, um, these crazy songs or performing these crazy songs on stage, uh, in tandem. Um, but we also should consider the fact that, you know, it's not necessarily just the case that these people are, are sort of fucked up mentally or struggling with something. Um, like let's look at the fact that, um, heroin and opioid consumption sort of, is broken up into three categories in terms of how people start. So you have those that are cocaine binging. Um, so they do so much cocaine, they ultimately snort heroin later to fall asleep because they're just so amped up on the cocaine they can't they can't fall asleep. So they binge, 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 and then they're like, all right, we'll do a line of heroin, and you not essentially nod off into this like warm, blanketed sleep. They describe it. And you're and you're done for the night. Um, two, you have poly drug experimentation where individuals are sort of just trying out all sorts of different drugs out of curiosity, ultimately leading them to their demise, which would be uh, recreational use of opium. I would argue that there's no such thing as <laughs> recreational use of opium. Um, if you, if you're using heroin, eventually you're, it's going to lead you somewhere you don't want to go. Um, and then also we need to consider that, um, doctors were over prescribing medications, um, to, specific individuals. I mean not even specific individuals, just to anybody. And they're giving you like a hundred hundred pills of oxy in one script, you know, for a, a freaking broken finger. And they're like, all right, you know, you're you're in pain. Here's here's a couple, you know, here's a hundred pills of heroin. Synthetic oh, wow. heroin.
0: No.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, enjoy. So we also should consider the fact that, you know, these these people that are dying aren't necessarily just um failing themselves, but potentially our systems are failing um these people. And I know we focused our conversation today mainly on artists, but it also uh, parallels society. You know, these deaths are like, like we said earlier, I think it, I think I said what, like seventy thousand deaths in twenty nineteen due to um some sort of opium. Um that's not just artists, you know what I mean? But what's unique is we can identify with these artists as a culture, as a nation. And sort of be like, hey, I see this guy's going down a dark road.
0: How can we help this guy?
2: How can we help him? As how can we start base, the conversation, you know, yeah. or potentially identify as, hey, I'm going down a dark road. So is in Mac Miller. Mac Miller is clearly losing touch with himself. I'm losing touch with myself. Um, how do I get healthy. And I think we have to take away the stigmas that are associated with drug use and, um, and addiction, especially in America, because, you know, let's look at it like this. So I I go back to, to Winehouse. Um, you know, she needed to be, um, wicked skinny. She needed to be in, in top stage shape, if you will. And essentially, um, her bulimia became so bad that, and her her hatred for herself became so bad that she drowned herself in alcohol. I would argue if there were more readily available resources that could potentially help her cope with that body dysmorphia that she was experiencing, um, she, perhaps she would have seen a different ending.
1: It's, it's also not so easy to seek treatment for yourself. Exa- no, yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. And
2: I and I think I think potentially. Um, these conversations are, are going to open up new doors that are unspoken and, and unexplored um, so that people that are sick don't have to feel like they're a failure of the world or a failure to themselves or a failure to their families. Like, I mean, I couldn't even imagine being somebody that's addicted to drugs and having to go tell my mom. That I'm addicted the last to heroin. person you're gonna tell
0: is like your family because you don't want to be embarrassed. You don't, you don't want, to, want to be embarrassed. And there's that stigma that around it that is your family and your loved ones are gonna disown you. And I think that in the music community, when you are on this huge stage and your drug use is pretty open with your fans, your fans don't think that you have a problem. They think everything's fine. You're just doing it, you know, for the, you're not not even doing it for the attention. You just this is just who you are, and you it doesn't matter. You're fine. You're gonna be fine. It's Whatever. your brand. You know what what I mean? Exactly. It's attached to who you are. And if that's what your brand is building off of, then you're going to keep doing it. You're going to try things that are even harder and people aren't going to really care until things like overdoses happen. Loved ones die. You die. All these different things. Like let's, let's talk about Demi Lovato a little bit. She had to take mm -hmm. a huge break from music Mm -hmm. just so that she could get rehab, find resources to help with her cocaine. right? Cocaine, Yeah. yeah, And she, uh, potential suicide. Yeah. Um, You know, all these things was she was engulfed by this lifestyle that was her brand. And I think that she figured out that she didn't want to do those things and live that way until she had figured out what she needed to do to, you know, like Mac Miller says, self-care.
2: So like the music industry, I mean, we're identifying this strange double standard where it's like, talk about the fact that you're addicted and struggling and, and, you know, your audience is going to love it. They're going to identify and be like, hey, I love demi lovato because she sees the world and deals with the same things that i do and i see and we're seeing the world from a similar playing field right and that's cool because she's an icon but but the double standard then becomes okay demi lovato's fucked up keep making money
0: don't be like her keep making money but yeah it's a bad example like demi
2: shut up you're making money you know what i mean you know and then all of a sudden it's like kind of Demi comes off and she's like she's really suffering and in the media's like you know she's fucking crazy you know what i mean like she's going a wire it's like yeah she's addicted to drugs you know and what these artists don't have that i would argue the status quo has um is a sense of privacy so they can deal with their issues from behind the scenes and not be scrutinized by millions of people and that much. So I imagine that makes it that much harder um, for these artists, whether it be f- as late or I should say as early as the seventies and as late as, you know, 2019,
0: 2020, it, it just makes no. it
2: so much harder because it's like, Oh my God, if, if I admit defeat, then I'm going to lose everything that I've built and worked so hard for this empire that I've created. Um, and I mean, that's got to, That alone has got to create so much anxiety that these people are, are, I mean, I can't argue that I wouldn't be an alcoholic if I was dealing with all that stress. What we see, which is very interesting, especially in, um, England is the emergence of rave clubs. I think it was late eighties, early nineties. And with these rave clubs, people started to do psychedelic drugs. So these psychedelic drugs were coming out of nowhere, molly, ecstasy, whatever it be. And they were actually lessening alcohol sales. So now all these big alcohol companies have to come up with some sort of solution. So what they do is uh, start to create new products that are stronger with with a more diverse product line. So they're coming out with malt liquors. You know, smearing off ice is dropping like popsicle flavor, freaking um, alcoholic beverages that are seven point five percent. People
0: to get addicted to, you know.
2: But what they did is they remarketed their their uh, alcohol, and I think it was by two thousand four, the emergence of uh, binge drinking really, really started to um, take take, take hold of of culture in both the United States and the UK. And what they were what they were doing is uh, alcohol companies not only created the stronger beverages and a more diverse line of products, they also marketed specifically to younger people and encouraged them to drink more. And that's interesting because at the same time, Max growing up with us,
0: he's, he's going through that. He's older than us. Yeah.
2: You know, he's really not that much older than us. So he ultimately was part of that marketing pool to get fucked up more, fucked up more. Talk
0: about it, promote it and, then you're and promote it and you so go bo- get bought into mac
2: it. in a sense metaphorically cuz i can't say this it, that he was making money off this don't, i don't know i didn't look it up i didn't look it up but mac was making alcoholic companies money because he was promoting the culture that they tried to create in early, the early 2000s. Yes, and they yes, did successfully yeah. create that culture. Now, consider this super quick. I, I, I want to let you guys talk, but I, I got to get this out. Oh, big big talker, Chris. Big talker. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the UK, like I said, they're drinking seven days a week, right? Mm-hmm. I looked up the numbers. We are just behind them in terms of the binge drinking percentage. Oh
0: yeah. To- totally. do.
2: So you know what the, you know what it is? Essentially it's a difference in culture while they're, they're more of the marathon pace. They'll go all night. They'll go, um, you know, they'll drink all day slowly. You know, maybe they're drunk by the end of the day and they do get shit faced. Don't get me wrong. But, um, we're more of sprinters here. Oh yeah. So we're about to definitely. chase. We're about, we're about quick, 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 quick. Think about boss, Boston, Boston the Boston aesthetic you know, big business. We're going quick. We're new Englanders, you know, get to fucking Duncan, get your okay. coffee, and get your out coffee,
0: of coffee, get through the day and then hit the bars. So the bar, get black out and hopefully we go home.
2: That, do, it, to, do it all over. Again. To get to my, exactly. my point, you know, um, while it was a little different when Winehouse and Hendrix, you know, obviously there's a, there's a gap between the two of them. Um, but when, when they were artists, there's a little bit difference in, in the marketing and sort of the cultural experience of substance consumption. um, mm-hmm. Nowadays, I'd argue that we're sort of living in a, a post-marketed world where we're, facing, we're, we're dealing with the repercussions of encouraging the youth to get fucked up and fucked up often.
1: Absolutely. I just pulled up these stats where uh, 30% of high school students, and this is from 2017, is that 30% drank some amount of alcohol, just in general. Uh, 14% of the high school students had binge drank. 6% drove while drunk. And 17% rode with the driver who had been drinking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's music's fault, and I don't think that it's exactly, you know, companies' faults, but I think it's we have to be smarter with how we consume these types of things.
2: So I, I'm reading a stat right now that's, that's somewhat interesting, and I'm not even going to say who... Um, this comes from guardchild.com. dot com. I didn't have time to to sort of check see how viable they are, and I, it's important that I mention that because who knows they could be complete bullshit artists. But they say approximately twenty percent of teens update their profiles on social media at least once a day. I can believe that. so. So think about how much screen time teens are getting nowadays, and so much of what we're seeing on social media has the presence of alcohol specifically and you know obviously who knows maybe cocaine would have been on social media if it was legalized a long time ago
0: yeah and uh which uh, let me bring up that uh, the, is wild the average so on average and this was a uh, a poll taken by Washington Post: uh, American children, eight to twelve year olds, spend four hours and forty-four minutes on screen to- or screen media each day, and then teens between the ages of thirteen and eighteen, or thirteen and twenty, spend an average of about seven hours and twenty-two minutes a day. So, and that's not including time spent on screens for school or homework. And we're li- we're living in a digital age at this point right now. And for you to take say like, hey, the amount of time that you spend in school is the same amount of time I spent on screen, some in school and some outside of school. That's a lot and that's constraining your eyes and that's constraining a lot of things. And what you're viewing though is a lot of this media that musicians are putting out, media platforms are putting out. And what's that media? It's pr- things to do with brands and things that are doing things for the consumer and that's affecting how people are getting raised.
2: So let, let's, let's talk about music videos. Sure. Yeah. Okay.
0: Let's talk about, let's bring up uh, this music video of Mac Miller with self care. Kind of round back around and let the ad play out.
2: Yeah, classic ad, you know what I mean? Come on, YouTube, you were cool one day.
0: So, Mac is in a box. He has a flashlight. It's dark. You can see it's nailed in. He's in a white, all white white shoes white pants white shirt pine box he's in a coffin yeah
2: that's what we're seeing he's now trying to get a cigarette out of his ankle sock although he is struggling because he's trapped inside a pine box coffins not the easiest
0: He's now trying to light the cigarette with a match and lights it off of the coffin. And while he was lighting the cigarette, he says,
2: "Let the medicine be on call." So obviously now he's sort of dealing, or he's um,
0: how would we he help? Feeding
2: his addiction with nicotine, because obviously he's addicted to cigarettes. Backs smoking safer. Oh, or whatever the, the
0: metaphor of a cigarette means, you know? Yeah,
2: exactly. And then he just says, we, we gonna be alright, even though he's in a box underneath
0: the ground. So I
2: think at this point he's just living this melancholy life and he's just sort of doing his thing.
0: But at the same time, he's slowly trying to dig himself out of this box. Yeah. I think it's important to
2: know that drugs come first, over his own
0: Yeah. Before he even tries to get out, which now he's doing with a knife, he had to light the cigarette. Exactly. so. Before he can even do anything.
2: So now we're gonna see a shift in, in the song, and uh, you know Maxim gonna drop another verse. Um yeah. He's been reading them signs. My, my, and he's been losing his mind.
0: crazy,
2: somebody save me from myself take that bullshit elsewhere and if we skip through the music video he eventually gets out of the box and the song shifts and it's very um, almost
0: almost ominous a little bit Yeah, it's it's
2: ominous, it's grey it's very lucid if it were a dream or um, it's like it's kind of spectacular, you Now he's got this white background and he just crawled out of the dirt as if he's in heaven. He just said he's been drinking too much. He got stuck in oblivion. And I believe ob- oblivion is his addiction. He got stuck in this endless loop that he can't get out of. It's forever. It's infinite.
0: concept that he had with his album swimming which obviously this was released on and his posthumous album circles yeah um his whole concept was living or swimming in circles and he was trying to get out of this hole he gets out and i think the whole swimming in circles concept is he falls right back in he has to go do another lap within it and then gets out goes back so I think it's something that attests to you know who he was as as a musician and what this world that he was living in kind of consisted of up until his death.
2: I think uh, it's a, it's important to place a lot of emphasis and, and attention on the fact that he he's always talking about this circular motion in his life. And that circular motion's like a hamster wheel, for instance. You know what I mean? He's on a hamster wheel and he he's just keeps running. Anywhere, he's sober when he wakes up or he's fucked up when he wakes up and he's fucked up when he wakes up. So he gets fucked up again and he's just fucked up and he's fucked up and he's fucked up. Um, and he says, I got, you know, got caught in oblivion. Uh, I was drinking too much. You know, Or he gets stuck in oblivion, essentially. So when he's stuck in oblivion, arguably you could ar- argue that the... Um, Hamster wheel is this endless path that'll never complete. So oblivion essentially is his um, addiction and dependency on um, a variety of substances. Maybe it's not even one substance that he favors. Maybe he's just addicted to getting fucked up and trying to like change his his physical. Um, Reality.
1: I think that's an important point you just brought up is a lot of these cases where people use drugs, they don't use just one drug. They use a variety of drugs or a medley at the
0: same time. Mm-hmm. Alright, well, I don't know if you guys want to keep going or we want to wrap it up and do uh, a part two at some point. I think we, I think
2: we wrap it up. We. Yeah. Honestly, at one point we were going off.
0: All right, guys, we're going to wrap it up for today. We want to thank you for all listening and taking the time to hear us talk. Again, we want to thank StarCast as being your go-to podcast platform. We hope you join us next time on episode number two. And have a hot guy Friday. Have a hot guy guy Friday.
2: Have a sexy Friday, folks.
0: Nice and loose. Nice and loose.